This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to Cambridge Assessment. I'm Paul Newton, and this is a seminar in our current issues and assessment series. Okay, we're very pleased to be able to welcome and to introduce to you Professor Rob Coe. Um, Rob works in the School of Education at Durham University, and he's the director of the Centre for Evaluation and Monitoring. Uh, is it now called the Chem Centre or just Chem? Mm. Debatable. Very clear. <laughs> Chem, I think we call it, but <laughs> okay. He's, he's responsible. <laughs> responsible for all of the the Chem Centre work now. Um, Rob is a mathematician by training, and he's taught in. Uh, a range of schools, taught mathematics in a range of schools, before entering academia in the mid-1990s. Rob's got a range of academic interests, from uh, maths and science education, evaluation, methodology, school improvement and effectiveness, uh, not to mention assessment, of course. Rob's particularly known in the assessment field for his work on comparability. That's from an an empirical perspective is research into comparability across subjects uh, and over time and from a more theoretical perspective trying to work out what on earth all those statistics mean and how on earth to interpret them. So I'm very pleased that Rob's been able to join us today and he's going to be talking about the relationship between regulation and examination standards. Thanks Rob. Okay, thanks Paul and thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be here. Um, so I'm going to talk about comparability, yes, before I can get on to that, I need to say a few things about some more um, fundamental issues as well. <clears throat> so forgive me if I do that. Here's an overview of um, what I'm going to say. This is the slide to read if you don't want to listen to the rest of the talk, because it's basically all there. Um, so I'm going to... Uh, I don't know if it's a worry or if it's a, a hope in a way that I'm going to upset everybody here. Certainly, uh, people from awarding bodies, I'll have something to say to upset you. People from the regulator, I'm sure I'll have things to say to upset you. Uh, any teachers here, I don't know, probably have something to upset you. Policy makers, um, uh, anyone else I haven't covered? <coughs> um, the, Queen. the Queen is here, yes. <laughs> Maybe I'll slip in something about the Royal Wedding. Uh, so I'm going to have a, have a bit of a dig at the current qualification system uh, and the, the sort of tail-wagging-the-dog nature of what we're doing here in terms of uh, what, what, is the, what is the education system, what, what should we be trying to achieve through the curriculum and through assessment? Uh, because I think if we're going to understand comparability and we're going to understand um, really where I'm coming from is justifying this need for diversity. <clears throat> and as Paul said, I was a teacher and... Uh, my experience as a teacher, I can remember, uh, in fact I taught at, I was just saying to Paul, at Long Road Sixth Form College here in Cambridge, but I also taught in another Sixth Form College in, in Godalming, and I can remember, in, this was in the um, early 90s I guess, teaching A-level maths, and we had one A-level maths which was 100% coursework, and we had one A-level maths which was no coursework at all, and we had a third one which was the SMP 16 to 19, which was new then, um, and there was bits of coursework and bits of all kind of other exciting stuff in there. And students could choose which of those three A-levels they wanted to do. Whether they were comparable or not uh, is an interesting question. That was one of the things they sometimes asked us when they came in the open day, you know, which, which one's easier? Um, and the answer was, well, it depends who you are. It depends how you like to work. If you like to sort of plough away at a big problem, then the 100% coursework one is an interesting course for you. If you don't like that, you just want to kind of produce the goods on the day at the end, then obviously the uh, exam-only one is a, is a good one for you and so on. It seemed to suit different people. And from an educator's point of view, that seemed to me um, an appropriate thing to be able to offer, to be able to offer different courses with very different kinds of styles, very different kinds of content and very different kinds of approaches. And for students to be able to choose those according to how those suited their, their needs and their interests and their future plans for what they, they might be going on to do. So uh, I, I think there's a strong case for, for diversity, and I think since that time, as I say, early 90s then, uh, diversity has very much decreased. We've, we've come to be a, a very much a monolithic uh, system in terms of assessments and curriculum, I think, more so than we were then. And I personally think that's a bad thing, and I'll try and make the case for some of that. 
I will talk about comparability. Why does it matter whether qualifications are comparable or not? It comes down to this question about interchangeability. If we want to treat them as interchangeable, then it does matter clearly. Uh, and just as a, um, you know, so you feel it's been worth coming, I will offer what I hope are solutions to three of the sort of big problems of comparability um, that uh, we use qualifications as, or grades as interchangeable for purposes of selection. Universities and employers treat them in that way. We want to treat, use grades as, uh, as an indication of the progress that students have made or that, that schools have, um, uh, have added to those students, if you like, um, and also in evaluating systems. How, you know, has the whole education system improved or not? So um, those, I think we can, we can crack those problems in the space of the next 40 minutes or so. Can't be that hard, can it? <clears throat> I do modestly say I think at the end there, you know, so. We'll see. Anyway, you'll have a chance to, uh, to say whether you think uh, any of that's helpful or not. Okay, so here's the first at attack on the current qualification system. And qualifications in England, I think we're really living off a history of a rather amateurish approach to this. Uh, not a lot of understanding of assessment theory goes into the development of most of our qualifications. Um, and I think if you looked at this as an outsider, uh, with a knowledge of what goes on around the world, um, well, maybe three out of ten is a bit harsh, actually. Probably give it four. But certainly there's some room for improvement there. And what I think is good about our system is that our assessments are actually based on what's been studied. So we do assess what's been taught, and some other countries don't do that. Uh, or, you know, you get into college, university, not on the basis of things that you've been taught in school. And I think that's, that's a strength of our system, and that's something that I wouldn't want to see us lose. Uh, but on the downside, I think if you look at the content of what's assessed, it's mostly right at the trivial end of what we might claim should be learnt. Um, and that the, as I say, the, the construction of these assessments, the design... Uh, owes little to any real sophisticated understanding of assessment theory or any understanding at all. Um, and in particular, validity, I think, is, is the crucial issue here because we ought to be able to say what qualifications are for, how they, they may or may not be used and interpreted. And uh, it's not clear to me that we always or even ever actually do that. And that seems to me a bit of a gap. Uh, so on that first point, the low level of the skills, and, and there are one or two studies. I'd be quite interested to know if other people know of more studies here. But I've, I've uncovered one or two studies which have looked at things like GCSEs and uh, applied, say, Bloom's taxonomy to say, well, what levels are represented here? And they typically find there's plenty of knowledge, there's, there's plenty of comprehension, there's almost nothing of any of the higher levels. Um, and actually, that's deeply alarming and worrying, I think, because how, how can we be surprised? One of the criticisms that's made of, for example, league tables is that they encourage teachers to, to drill kids to pass uh, tests by, you know, spoon-feeding knowledge and that kind of thing. Well, if that's what's being assessed, of course they do. You know, if that's what's going to get you the grades, that's what you'll do, isn't it? That would be sensible. And some of that criticism is levelled against accountability systems and league tables in general. And maybe that's justified. Um, I'm sure it is to some extent. But it seems to me worth asking at least as a question, well, if we had assessments that, that tapped into a broader range of skills, in particularly the higher level skills, the evaluation, the synthesis, the analysis, and those things were actually assessed, then, of course, those things would have to be taught... And then um, cramming students to pass exams might not be a bad thing at all. You might be teaching them higher-level skills. Um, <clears throat> I don't know of any examples uh, where that can be seen, but maybe other people do. And as I say, it seems at least a question to ask. Um, and maybe there are other studies. Maybe, maybe other analyses have been done that suggest that the few studies I've found aren't representative. Maybe some of these higher-level skills are being assessed. Again, I'd be interested to know if people are aware of those. 
Um, so that was the first thing about the low level of our assessment. And the, and the issue there, I think, is that the, the knowledge and the comprehension, the, the, the lower end of the um, complexity of skills, are very much easier to assess. It's much easier to write questions that tap into knowledge and, and sort of low-level comprehension than it is to assess reliably, uh, particularly and validly, some of those higher-level skills. So we've gone for the easy option a bit, I think. Uh, then there's this whole question about validity. And if I wasn't in Cambridge assessment, I could perhaps say that pretty much nobody in the awarding bodies is even thinking about these things. But I know, of course, that people here are thinking about them, so uh, well done you. But outside of this building, I, I don't know if people are very much. Um, this is just from the standards about what a test developer should, um, should do. And it's pretty clear from that that if you are... And who's the test developer here? Is it the awarding body? Is it the regulator? Um, or is it somebody else? Or is it some combination of the two? Uh, I, th I think the awarding body is, is the kind of primary agent here, would be my view. But again, people may have different views about that. So what's clear from the standards here, the American uh, version of this, is that if you are... Uh, the test developer, if you are, say, the awarding body creating A-levels or GCSEs or vocational, whatever other qualifications, then it's incumbent on you. It's not anyone else. It's not by default that you assume these things are taken for granted. You actively have to say uh, what, what the recommended interpretation and use of those assessment grade scores is and the evidence that supports that and set forth clearly how they're intended to be interpreted and used, who they're appropriate for, and so on. And the third standard there uh, doesn't uh, make sure you can't wriggle off this hook by saying, well, people use our assessments in ways they weren't intended for, because if it's a common or likely interpretation, then you need to explicitly say uh, either that you haven't investigated it and therefore it's not licensed for that use, or you have and the evidence does or doesn't support that. So you can't say, well, we don't intend our, you know... So are, is it fair enough for people to treat qualifications as interchangeable and to use them for selection or not? Well, if you're the test developer, you need to take a view on that. You need to either say, yes, it's fine, you can treat French as if it's the same as physics, or no, it's not fine, you can't do that. You can't just say, oh, well, you know, it's a bit complicated. Um, that's a cop-out. I think that, and the standards agrees with me. OK. <clears throat> so that's the current system. Um, here's my view about what we should do, and this is pretty straightforward, isn't it? We need to think hard, think clearly, actually. Maybe think hard and clearly about what educational aims and outcomes we want. We can all do that. Uh, if we've done that then I think uh, we also need to think, and this is a separate question, about what sorts of uses we want assessments to support. And then, and this is the hard bit, I'll put that in red, uh, all we've got to do is to devise assessments that, that assess those things that we value. And then I think the curriculum will follow. So this is really the point here, is that if we get the assessment right we don't really need to think about a curriculum because people will teach uh, what's being assessed, what's being valued, and if we, th if we claim things are valued and we don't assess them, then they won't be taught. So it's, it's pretty clear, I think, that the assessment is what counts here. Uh, number three, I think, may be quite hard to do, but I think that's where we need to um, focus our attention and the rest of the talk will say a bit about that. So, just coming back to this issue about validity, these are just quotations from, from Keynes' uh, chapter in the um, Educational Measurement. Uh, definitions of validity, that's okay. It's an argument-based notion. Uh, but just two points to make about that. One is that where we um, interpret... Uh, assessments in a particular way, a unit of interpretation, if the unit of interpretation is a particular qualification, 
then the validity argument needs to focus on that qualification. It's no good if it, follow, if it focuses on a subset of it. Um, or if we're using, if, we're, if the interpretation is about, a, a, say, a country's performance, then the validity argument must relate to the, the, that unit of aggregation, the country. There's no point in saying, well, it's an unreliable assessment if you look at individuals, because that's not relevant if you're interpreting it as telling you something about the whole country, for example. I know that's obvious, but uh, I, I think it's just worth restating that. And the reason that's important is because when we talk about comparability, what I'll be saying is that what we're essentially doing uh, when we, or one of the ways in which we treat um, qualifications as interchangeable and therefore need to worry about comparability is when we use different qualifications as elements of a composite measure of a person's suitability for something else. So, for example, we pool together three or four A-levels uh, as an indication of how suitable a person is to go to a particular university and read a particular course. We use that for selection. And the, what the, the, the unit that's being interpreted is not each individual A-level, it's the combination of the three or four or whatever. That's the, um, that's the piece of information that uh, is being interpreted and is being used and therefore that needs to be justified. Uh, and the justification that you would give for a combined um, estimate of that person's ability or, or potential uh, is different from the one that you would give if you were talking about those individual grades or components or subjects or whatever. Um, so comparability, I'm saying, really is an aspect of validity. It's about because we take qualifications and we interpret them in particular ways and comparability is part of that interpretation and therefore it's part of a validity argument. So understanding what validity is is pretty important and there's a lot of confusion. Paul and I were just talking about this. Uh, a lot of confusion, uh, in, particularly in textbooks, about what validity is and how you set about establishing it. <clears throat> OK, so a couple of slides ago... I said something about how all we had to do is to work out what we think the important aims and objectives for education are. And I'm sure people will have thought, well, there's, there's several, aren't there? You know, different people will have different views about this. Some people will think one thing's important, another will think other things are important. And also in relation to assessments, again, there are lots of different uses and interpretations. And... So it's all very well for me to say that the, uh, the, the test developer has to address each of those, but that's quite a challenge because there are lots of them. And some of them are incompatible with each other, perhaps, and so can we really do that? And um, Paul's famously 22 uses... Actually, this is an increasing number, isn't it? Because there were... Were there 18, I think, the first time I heard you talk about this? And uh, then the next time it comes around, or several times later maybe, is 22. But there aren't just 22 because those are only examples and each of them has sub-uses. So there's probably 100, or, or very many anyway, different interpretations and uses of qualifications. And uh, if you want somebody to come and um, conceptually separate things out that should be separate then Paul's your man. He's definitely the one to go for, for that. But it seems to me that actually, uh, we, at some stage, we may need to, to have a bit more of a, a synthesis as well and bring some of these together and look at some of the things that are similar across them. And so my attempt to do that is that, yes, there are lots of different uses, there are lots of different purposes, there are lots of different ways that qualifications are used. Um, but I think they broadly come under those three headings. In fact, I'm not even sure that the first one isn't a subset of the second. So um, my instinct is the opposite of Paul's. He wants to separate everything out. I want to kind of put things together and say everything is just one. Everything's the same, really. Uh, so we probably work quite well together. Um, broadly, there are three kinds of things that we use assessments for. 
the first is diagnostic. So we do use assessments to help us decide what, what the next thing is appropriate. If, if somebody hasn't quite got, got um, uh, I don't know, um, integration by parts or something, well, an assessment will tell us that, and so we teach that. Uh, or if they've got a specific learning difficulty that, that we know there's a particular appropriate uh, way to address, then diagnostic is, is an important role there. The second is about evaluation. So we want to know uh, at what stage on a journey, on a trajectory, students are at at the moment. Are they um, where we'd expect them to be, if you like, for their age group or for their, where they were, given where they were a year ago? Have they made the appropriate amount of progress? Um, those kind of questions. Do we, uh, we might want to aggregate some of those up to say, uh, not just for an individual student, have they, have they achieved what we might hope or expect them to have achieved? We might want to say, have all the students taught by a particular teacher made the kind of progress that we'd expect them to have made? Or all the students in a particular school or in a particular local authority or in a particular um, country or whatever? Um, so those are basically evaluative. And so... Um, uh, a number of the different purposes come under that heading. Um, and then the third type is to do with prediction. Essentially, we want to use assessments to predict future performance of some kind. And we do that either when we assess uh, the same thing that we want to be able to predict. Um, so when we're interested in certifying that a person on a particular day can you know, reverse round a corner and, and do a three-point turn or whatever, it's of no interest at all that they did that on that particular day. What's of interest is the likelihood that they'll be able to do that again and to do other kinds of related things again. So the, although the certification, we may tend to focus on the specific things that have been demonstrated, actually what we're interested in is the, their ability to predict either those things or something different at some point in the future. If they don't predict, the assumption is if you can do it once, you can do it again. And that may well be true. Um, but we also use an assessment of, of one thing to uh, predict something else. So, um, you know, the fact that I can write an essay about Macbeth or something um, doesn't just mean that I can write an essay about Macbeth. It means that I can... Uh, study other texts and, and write essays about them as well. Well, that's the assumption we make. Or that I can even learn, uh, you know, about, uh, about river systems or, or whatever it might be, uh, which is completely unrelated, of course, but the assumption is that if you can do one of these things or that the demonstrated ability to do one of those things is a reasonable predictor of something else which is a little bit of a, a transfer, a little bit of a leap. Um, and, of course, we do that all the time. And if, uh, if I'm, a, say, a university admissions tutor and I'm interested in selecting the best students into my course and all I've got is, their, say, their A-level grades to look at, well, they won't have been taught in their A-levels necessarily the things that I'm going to want them to do when they come to me. They may have been taught some of those things. They may have been taught some of the foundations for those things. But I'll still use those grades as an indication of their likely potential um, and uh, the similar kinds of skills broadly defined with the assumption that, they, um, that they're transferable in some sense from one context to another. Uh, and as I say, they're, they're, again, there's a number of different um, of the 22 that come under that heading, but I just like to put them together because I think they're similar enough to be able to say that they belong together. Okay, so uh, the, in terms of comparability, the diagnostic thing doesn't really come into it because that's a, a kind of separate set of purposes, if you like. But there are comparability-related issues that come up under the heading of evaluation and also under prediction. So those are two separate types of purpose, if you like, both of which relate to comparability issues. Okay. Now, I want to say a bit about diversity, because I mentioned the, um, the diversity that we used to have in the A-level system, for example, with many different uh, A-levels, uh, even within the same subject, different kinds of 
structures and assessment systems. And today we have very much less of that, much more um, regulated and much more uniform structures. Um, and I think there's a case for diversity. Um, and it, that relates to the question about, well, can we all agree then about what the aims for education should be? And I think the reality is, no, of course we can't. And so the question is, well, does that matter then? Or who's going to decide then? Is it, is it just whoever's in power at the moment uh, will make a decision about what they think is important um, and they will impose that on everyone else? Or are there other ways that we could come up with for allowing um, diverse needs and aims to coexist? And I suppose the idea of a market is in my head here. Um, people talk about markets. Some people are great fans of markets. I'm not altogether sure quite where I stand on this because it's often um, comes over as being quite a sort of um, a right-wing idea, if that, if that exists anymore. Um, but uh, actually some of the... Um, Politically, people on the right have, have tended to be the ones who have been most constraining on this as well. So there's some anomalies here. But I think the idea of, of um, you know, in other areas of life where there are diverse needs, the analogy I've got in my mind, for example, is of, of cars, you know, where there are thousands or hundreds, anyway, of different cars out there on the road, and they reflect the different needs, I suppose, or different demands that people have to buy a car. We don't all want to have the same car, um, and so a market provides that. There are lots of different cars out there and we can choose which one we want. And that allows diversity to exist and people can, you know, what can I afford, what do I want? They can make those choices and they can get a car that's suitable for them. Well, why can't we have the same sort of system in, in education and in qualifications where there will be lots of different qualifications out there and people can say, well, that qualification is, is pretty valuable um, that one looks a bit hard for me. I don't, I'm not sure that I'm going to be, do so well on that. This one looks really interesting, and they make a choice, and they, in the same kind of way, they, they pay for it in the sense in the terms of their, what they put into it, um, and then they get something back in the sense of, of what the value of that qualification is. Um, I mean, the problem is that, that we will have these, these contested views about what... what Educational aims are important, um, and it's not clear to me that we'll ever resolve those. We've also got lots of different individuals with lots of different needs and, and requirements and desires, um, and clearly there are some benefits in allowing those people to make that choice, but may also be disadvantages. And, of course, people want to go different ways with things. People want to study different things or study... Uh, or not study or whatever in the future and therefore there may be quite different paths that are appropriate for them. Um, so I, I don't know but I think this is an idea that's certainly worth exploring. There are at least two possible concerns though about diversity and maybe there are others which would be interesting to hear about. One is the, the whole problem of confusion. If, you have, if, we, if we just let a free-for-all of qualifications, anyone can create a qualification and put it out there in the marketplace. Won't that be rather confusing for users? How will they know what a qualification represents? How will they know what it's worth? Um, won't that be a problem? I don't think that will be too much of a problem, or needn't be, provided uh, people who are using these qualifications are willing and able to make their preferences clear. Um, and they may not be, of course... Um, so there's some history there of, of you know, universities like Cambridge saying uh, these are the A-levels we prefer, or I can't remember their exact wording that they used two or three years ago, um, and these are the ones that you, know, you can do one of but don't, for heaven's sake, do more than one or something like that, didn't they say? And then they retracted that, I think, a, a year or two ago, and they're no longer saying that. So, and no other university, certainly my own, wasn't brave enough to, to um, put its head above that particular parapet. But clearly admissions tutors will, will have those views about which things they prefer. They just weren't willing to take the risk of the uh, public attack if they said so. So there might be some concerns about that. Um, I think, and secondly, that the awarding bodies or other providers 
um, are clearer about what these qualifications are. So part of the onus, I think, is on the people who create the assessments to say, here's an assessment, this is what it tells you, this is what's in it, this is what you have to do. If a person has, a, has this qualification, this is what you can expect from them. This is how you can interpret it. And then, of course, we have to be uh, pretty clear and defensible on the claims that we might make about interchangeability. <clears throat> so one of the problems at the moment is that we've, we've got some diversity and we've got uh, certain claims about interchangeability that, you know, this particular qualification is worth four of those or whatever, uh, but none of that's based on any kind of evidence and um, most of it's rubbish. So that, I think, is, is not helping us here. And I think if we could sort that out a bit better, then there might be less confusion. Or perhaps I'm being naive, I don't know. Uh, the other objection there is about possible unfairness, social consequences. And this, I think, is more of a worry. And I think if anybody, either today or later, um, comes up with good evidence that this would be a problem, then I would, uh, in future, never give this talk again and never advocate what I'm saying I think is the solution because uh, it, would be, it would be worrying. So if that evidence is around already, I don't know. Certainly it's a claim that's made, and it may, it's a plausible claim, but as I say, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, the, the kind of argument is that the more, you, uh, the more you have specialist qualifications, the more you advantage those particular schools who are able to support those specialisms, I guess. And the example I, I would perhaps have is when... Um, when I was at school and wanting to go to university to read mathematics, uh, you didn't quite have to do further maths, but it was a pretty strong disadvantage if you hadn't done further maths. Uh, and it had been a requirement, but it had been relaxed because further maths was already starting to be a bit of a problem at that point. And in the time since, further maths more or less disappeared from uh, comprehensive schools because there simply weren't teachers who could teach it, and therefore universities couldn't require it and then, of course, things like you know, the um, Oxford and Cambridge entrance exams. Again, similar kinds of arguments that, that not requiring those, that, that taking, making admission selections on the basis of general A-levels was a fairer way to go because the schools that could really support students in taking those specialist exams were the schools where a, a large body of students were preparing for those exams, the independent schools and the selective schools. Okay, so that, that's an argument that's been put forward to defend some things that have happened in the past. Maybe that's a sound argument, I'm not sure. Um, I wonder whether what, what we do when we create a kind of one-size-fits-all one, one solution, so everyone's got to do A-level and we'll make those selections on the basis of the same exam for everyone, um, is not so much solving the problem as just hiding it. I, you know, are we actually getting more diversity because of that? I don't know. I don't know. As I say, I'd be interested to see any evidence about this. And uh, also, I think part of the problem that sometimes might arise here is when, when there's, there's different qualifications, some of them are sort of seen as being elite, uh, but we haven't quite sorted out the comparability issues properly, so they're, they're sort of elite more by reputation than, than by reality and that that probably isn't helping. Uh, but as I say, if, if, this, if anyone could convince me that this was a problem, then I would be quite seriously worried about that. So um, I will be interested to know what people think. OK, well, I need to talk a bit about comparability, because that's what I said I would talk about. Uh, so here goes. So um, various different attempts people have made to... Um, uh, categorise different views of comparability. This is um, Joan Baird's uh, five different types. Then there's uh, Paul's three different uh, broad types, again with subdivisions, of course, within each of those. And um, these, are, these are my um, attempts at this, saying basically there are two types, but essentially they're both types of really just one. So here we go, you know, everything is all part of the same thing. Um, I can't help it, I'm sorry. Uh, but, but it relates to the construct because if you want to say things are comparable, they've got to be comparable in terms of something. There's got to be something that, uh, against which you compare them. 
uh, or uh, yeah, against which you say they're, they're comparable. Um, and there's overlap between those different uh, views of what's going on and so on. But the crucial thing is, I think, that we need to think about not just what are the different types of comparability in terms of the different ways that people have and the different methods, perhaps, that people have used to evidence them, uh, but why does it matter? That's the crucial question. Why does comparability matter? Why should we care whether things are comparable or not? And the answer is simple, because we treat them as interchangeable. We treat uh, your um, Spanish this year with uh, my Spanish last year as being the same, don't we? Okay. We treat, uh, you know, you did physics with OCR and I did it with AQA. Are they comparable? Well, we treat them as though they are. Um, you know, you did... Um, art and I did photography. We treat them as, as comparable. Are they really? So it's about interchangeability. And if we're going to want to do that, then we need to worry about comparability. So we can't dodge that issue. We can't say, oh, it's terribly hard and complicated and depends on lots of assumptions. OK, if it's that hard, then stop treating them as interchangeable. That's the choice. You can't have it both ways. Um, uh, and I think there are broadly two kinds of interchangeability or two, two uh, kinds of interpretations that require in interchangeability. And one is in terms of what they predict. And that's broadly when we use them for selection. And the second is when we use them to evaluate, to evaluate uh, individuals' progress, school or teacher effectiveness, or the performance of whole systems. And the problem is that those are then a series of whole different claims about interchangeability. Every time we want to use them as interchangeable for a different purpose, we need a different supporting argument, and, and therefore a different, um, a different tariff, if you like, that, that they may be comparable for one purpose and not for another. And there is no way to solve that. Unless we say, well, there's only one purpose that really matters, and that's uh, you know, a particular kind of selection, and everything else can just hang off that or not care about. If we, if we want to be able to try and meet all these needs, uh, we actually can't do that simultaneously in principle. So that's a bit of a problem. But as I say, I think we can solve this. So I think there are broadly three kinds of problems about comparability. One is the issue about prediction. So um, if we want to use different uh, A-levels, say, for uh, selection to universities, then that's an example of this kind of thing. And my solution there is that we, uh, we acknowledge that, that there will be differences, that the grading systems are complicated and so on, but we adjust the, the value accorded to these different qualifications at the point of use. And that allows us to say that uh, if I'm an admissions tutor uh, in a subject like, I don't know, education studies, which I might be, um, then I can assign one set of values and you might be in geography, you could assign a different set of values, that's fine. You know, you might prioritise geography, I might prioritise sociology or psychology or whatever. Um, uh, we want them for different things, we want to make different predictions from them, therefore it's not, uh, it's not a problem that we, the comparabilities that we require are different. Uh, so it's adjustment at the point of use. That's the crucial thing there. The second problem, and I'll give you an example in a minute of that. <clears throat> the second problem is using uh, qualifications when we want to evaluate progress. We want to evaluate, we want to be able to say that uh, the progress made by a particular student um, in, in maths is, is equivalent to, you know, they've made more progress in maths than they did in English or something like that. Or that a, a maths teacher is better than an English teacher. Uh, to put it baldly. Um, and obviously that requires some notion of being able to say uh, that these are comparable. And that's a different kind of problem from the one about the, um, the selection but again, we can solve that, and um, the organisation that I work for, CHEM, or is it the CHEM Centre? I'm not really sure, uh, has been solving that problem for more than 25 years, so, you know, I think we've got that one cracked. 
And um, the third one, which is about uh, evaluating systemic change. So this is the one about change over time, really, comparability from one year to the next. How do you say whether uh, the exam this year was the same as it was last year and therefore claim that standards are rising, standards are falling, or, or, or whatever? And the answer is that with high-stakes uh, assessment, you pretty much can't do that, I think. And therefore, if you want to do that, you've got to use low stakes and therefore probably sample. I mean, don't ha- you don't have to do sampling, but you might as well. Um, and th- then you can equate them properly, and that's, that's the way to solve that one, if that's something you want to do. So there we are. That, you know, I don't think these are too hard. As I say, uh, uh, 45 minutes should do it. Uh, so this is the first one about the adjusted at the point of use. And this is what it would look like. This is just an analysis using the, the RASH model for A-level grades in a series of different A-level subjects. And this is last year, so we've got the new A-star in there. And you can see that a few of them... Uh, so there's some gaps here where those particular subjects, that particular grade in that subject, either didn't have enough people, if it didn't have at least 50... Uh, observations or it didn't fit the model then I've left it off but mostly they fit and mostly this is just from Alice data so this is not national data this is Alice which is about half the national A-level data set um, and what's interesting there So, and this, you've, it, the projector seems to have missed off the left hand but this is the the corrected tariff what I've called which is in UCAS points so whereas now If you get uh, an A, say, which is this line, you get 120 UCAS points regardless. What I'm saying is, well, if you get an A in, uh, what is that, English language, then yes, you should get 120 UCAS points. But if you get an A in, I don't know, say physics, you should get 130. And if you get an A in, uh, what is that one, textiles, you should only get 100 Because in terms of the latent trait that's being measured here, which is a kind of general A-level performance, if you like, you could call it ability if you want, Uh, the the capacity to pass A-levels, let's call it that. Uh, And the the fit to the model is extraordinarily good, by the way, that this general latent trait, the ability to pass A-levels, serves you well pretty much whatever A-level you want to take. So don't... For heaven's sake, think that physics and photography are different um, because they may be different, but in terms of passing the A-level, they're just not that different. That's the evidence. Surprising, I know, but that seems to be the case. Um, so, and, and that's broadly the trait, I think, that you might want if you were an admissions tutor and you'd be saying, uh, OK, yes, well, you got an A grade, but actually your A in textiles is a whole grade less than an A in English language, and that's half a grade less than an A in physics. And again, what's quite extraordinary here is the irregularity of the gaps. So one of the problems with um, the different methods that people have used to investigate comparability is that most of them assume that the gaps between grades are equal. They assume the gaps within a subject, so A star to A, A to B, and so on, within a subject, they're the same... We assume that because, by default, I suppose, we just code them as, you know... Well, UCAS codes them as being equal. We've always done that. Why wouldn't you? It's the obvious thing to do. It's just not true, unfortunately. And we also assume that uh, the gap um, across subjects is the same. So even if you were willing to, to acknowledge that systematically the gap between... Uh, a D and a C is smaller than a gap between an A and an A star, which it clearly is, about twice, about half. Um, the, the fact is that for some subjects, the gaps are bigger in different places, and, and it's all over the place. Uh, so the RASH model can account for that and can estimate those independently, and I think that's, that's one of the real strengths of it. Um, so why wouldn't we do that? Well, um, I guess because it's more complicated than what we do currently, but it seems to me that we, we should be doing something like that. Uh, and that solves the problem for selection. Tick. That wasn't too hard. 
Uh, oh, well, okay, so there is an issue about, well, which method do we use? Yeah. So there are lots of different statistical methods and also some judgment methods. And um, one of the concerns that people have is, well, if you use these different methods, they give you different answers. And that one will say that one subject's harder than another, another will put it the other way around, and so on. Well, this was an analysis we did for SCORE, the science group, looking at these five main different methods and looking at all the subjects there. And yes, there are some disagreements. You know, there's, there's up to half a grade in some cases between one method and another. But the point we made there is that the, the, disagree- the, the differences across methods are dwarfed by the differences across subjects. So the question is not are there problems with choosing one rather than another, but uh, can you defend choosing none of them? And the answer to that is emphatically no, you can't. I mean, you, you, you could get away with it because it's the default and you don't have, ever have to defend the default, it's just what you do. But that's lazy. Uh, you certainly wouldn't design a system like that from scratch. Uh, apart from this, this is an interesting anomaly here, further maths, but I won't go into that. Um, so, as I say, I think the RASH model is, the, is my preferred model, and the reason is, is mainly because it estimates the grade, uh, each grade independently, and you don't have to make this equal interval assumption, which is clearly rubbish. It's just not true. So, so if you didn't have to make it as an assumption... Why would you? Uh, the fact that you have to have... There, there has to be something there, a latent trait, um, I think is a strength there, because it does mean that you've, there's some conceptual meaning to this whole comparison, which some of the other methods don't require. That's also a disadvantage, in a sense, here, because it does mean that some subjects don't fit. So you get the kind of performing arts, the art subjects. The, so, I mean, some of those I listed are a bit borderline for whether they fit or not. And you could say, well, they don't really fit. We should put them out. Um, and that's a problem if you, if you... Or could be a problem. Um, and I know different systems have come up with different ways of doing that. But it seems to me, if you're using this for selection and a subject like art doesn't fit, what that's telling you is your grade in art is not, is not valid information for my selection purposes. You know, you might be great at art, but I'm interested in whether you can do geography or not and your grade in art has no informational value in relation to that. That's another way of saying it doesn't fit the model. So you should ignore it, shouldn't you? Uh, So that's a strength and a weakness, I guess, depending how you see it. This is another one, which is less of a problem now. We've got the A star, but I think when you had... And that's the thing with the further maths, why you get this huge difference, because uh, I think, is it something like two-thirds of of candidates got, got the top grade, until we had the A-star, got the top grade in further maths. So there's quite a significant ceiling effect there, and that's why some of the methods give it higher estimates and some lower. Uh, in fact, I think, again, if you were designing the system, uh, why would you have five or six categories of output? You'd surely have many, many more, wouldn't you? Everyone's asleep now, so I'm not going to get a response. Okay. Uh, nearly there. So then the second problem about the how do you, um, how do you evaluate uh, performance in a particular subject compared with another, say, and the answer is you don't. You, you keep the analysis within a particular subject or within a particular specification, if you like, within a, a particular uh, assessment um, process. And as I say, we've been doing this in the, in the value-added analysis that we provide for schools. So this is just one example. So this is one school you can't actually see very well, but those are a series of individual dots which run together because they've all got A stars in this school. Um, the line there shows the national trend, or in, in this case the trend for independent schools. These are our test scores, but you could put a whole basket of stuff in there if you wanted. You could have the whole CVA thing if you wanted. Um, uh, but the point is that you're not, as the CVA does, saying, here's the comparability, you know, every subject gets the same number of points, then we work out the value added. You do the value added first, and then you put them together. And if you just change the order of doing it, you've solved all the problems of comparability at a stroke. That wasn't too hard, was it? And the third one, then, about the, the sampling. Well, again, we've got... These are just examples. These are the studies that in, international studies that England has taken part in and our scores over time. And from that, you can see 
Well, it's clear, isn't it? Um, are we getting better or getting worse? Depends which study you like. Um, so there are real issues about what you, what you assess and how you assess it, but the technical issues about the sampling and all that kind of, and the equating, I think, are solved. You know, I think we're pretty good on those. So, so the crucial issue is, well, what do we value and how would we want to assess it, uh, not whether we can, uh, whether we can measure the um, changes in standards of a system over time. We can certainly do that. OK, now there are just a few questions for us to uh, resolve here. Uh, so can we agree about this, or if not, on some uh, mechanism for allowing different aims to coexist? Can we actually design adequate assessments to um, tap into some of these higher-level skills. And when I say, can we do it, I don't mean, um, given un, you know, no constraints and unlimited resources, could, could a bunch of really clever people do this. I mean, in the real world of, of you know, what it costs to produce a qualification, uh, can we feasibly do it in the timescales and costs and so on? Uh, I don't know, actually. Maybe we can't. Maybe that's too hard. Uh, are the benefits of diversity outweighed by the costs? I don't know. Can we, at any point, agree what comparability means? And if we can agree, can we agree what you have to do to establish it? Uh, probably not if there are any academics involved. And um, can we find... I mean, I've put forward three solutions which I think are statistically defensible and politically feasible, but what do I know? They're probably not. And I'm sure people will want to knock them down because that's the game here, isn't it? Um, but it's a challenge. I don't know. Anyway, that's the point at which I'm going to stop. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. This is a podcast from Cambridge Assessment. For more downloads, visit cambridgeassessment.org.uk.